0: Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, Podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Well, Father, we come into your presence tonight with all of the, the weights that we are carrying, with all of our own brokenness, with all of the stress of the weak. And we come pleading that your spirit would meet us here, that you would bring healing and wholeness, that you would focus our thoughts and refresh our hearts. And so we turn expectantly to your word And ask that you would speak through it to us. In the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as a church, we are in the middle of a series through the first several chapters of the book of Acts, a series called Beginnings, because this series is looking at the beginnings of the Christian church. So if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, then this is a great way to explore what Christianity is all about. You may have an impression of what the church is is or what Christianity is, and so my hope is that it would be interesting for you and hopefully compelling for you to be able to look back to the very foundations and beginnings of this church movement and of Christianity. If you are a Christian, if you're a part of Redemption Hill or or, are beginning to tie in with us, this is a great way to explore what we ought to be about so that um, we don't get caught up in all kinds of nonsense that that is not a part of the core of Christianity. And so over the last few weeks, we um, took an extended look at the day of Pentecost. And so Jesus had ascended into heaven and promised his Holy Spirit. And when his spirit descended on his apostles, they they went out preaching in the streets and people could hear them in their own languages and Peter the apostle stood up and preached a sermon and that we took a few weeks to look at and and 3000 people were brought into this new community and we looked last week at how that gospel the good news of who God is and what he's done through Jesus Christ that that gospel shaped a community in the early church and and that community was shaped by the apostles teaching and gathering for worship and scattering into each other's homes and 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 then also through that witness of that community, that people were brought into this new family. Well, today we're in Acts chapter 3, and we see today that that it didn't stay internal. It didn't stay inward, that this community was shaped, and they didn't just say, okay, that was great, we had 3,000 people join us in one day, and now we're good. And we've reached the size we want to be, and, and we don't really know what to do, and so let's just hunker down and look inward. Instead, what we see is that they continued to press outward, to join God in his work, in Jesus' work, in their city at that moment. And we see today the first miracle experienced in the early church. It was a healing miracle. So that raises all kinds of questions for us that we're going to explore today as we walk through this text together. It raises questions of pain and suffering, and why is there pain and suffering? Why was the man that was healed here, even though he was healed, why was he born into this situation? And why, for that matter, why are some people born into better or worse situations in life? How could a just God allow that to happen? It raises questions of, of, about miracles. Are miracles real? Can miraculous healing really happen? Or how do we even begin to think about healing? My hope today is that we'll be able to answer some of those questions in our time together, that as we explore this together, that it will be, some, that it will be clear and that we can see how God is at work. And so this is what we have in Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So an incredible event. This is the first thing that happens after this new community is formed. It's described at the end of chapter 2 that Peter and John were going into the temple courts as they did daily. They were headed in at the hour of prayer, which is around 3 in the afternoon. This was a regular account. And there was a crippled beggar who had been born this way that Luke, remember, is a physician. And so he had a keen attention to detail. He names the gate that the man was laid at. He gives us all kinds of historical detail on what happened here. And I think it's because I think there are times when we can read sections of the Bible like the book of Acts and think like, oh, well, this is just what happened every single day at that point and not not realize that Acts is putting together weeks and years of history in one place. And that the reason some of these things get written down is because it would have been just as surprising to this early church community as it would be to us to see this happen. So they describe the man and describe what happened. And, 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 you know, and, and right before this, we had a description of this early church community that they were supporting each other and helping each other and even selling off some possessions and property to come alongside each other and provide for each other's needs. Um, but still in the, midst of the, in the middle of all of that, we see here that they, they were not able as a small community to tackle the entire issue of poverty in their city. Peter here says, I don't have silver or gold, but he has something else that he has to offer this beggar. There's a healing that he extends in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. And there's a response both from the beggar and from the people who experienced it. So as we think about this, I want we 're going to see through the book of acts we 've talked a little bit it, as we as a church as we 've walked into this series that, that Acts has a description of the early church and description of some of the things that happened and and for us there 's going to be a constant, um, a constant tension of trying to figure out what are the descriptions of what have happened and which of those descriptions are prescriptive for how we do church now and so as, and this is the first healing we we'll, 're reading about, and it 's not the last one there'll be more and so Today, with the time that we have, I want to lay a foundation for us. How do we even think about these things? How do we even consider what miraculous healing is? What, how, do we, how do we build a biblical theology of what suffering is and how, why people are healed and how God breaks in that way? And so that's what we're going to take some time to do tonight, even as we consider this one story. So let's begin with the hard question. Why does suffering exist? How can a good God allow people to suffer? This is a question that gets put to Christians all the time. This is a question that I hear all the time as a pastor. I mean, most people, like most of my neighbors in D.C. just have no idea what to do with me. I'm the only pastor they've ever met. And they hear, you know, they say, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, cool. (laughs) Like like for your day job? Yeah, it's full time. (laughs) And... And, but still, this is one of the questions that will come up first when they want to understand what I, what I believe and people are, it's, it's not cold, they're very curious and good friends of ours, but still one of the questions that comes up over and over and over again is why does suffering exist? How can a good God allow suffering to happen? And so let's consider this for a moment. There, now suffering, it, biblically, there are different way, reasons that we suffer, not just biblically, but also in our, in our experiences. So let's talk through this a little bit. Sometimes we suffer because of our own personal sin. Let's be real, right? Sometimes the suffering we experience is just the consequence for our own actions. It's the consequence of things that we've chosen to do. That doesn't mean we actually want to take responsibility for those things. We still can get mad at God over them or blame other people. But, but if we're real, a lot of the suffering we experience is just this. It's, it's personal choices, and so um, it, within this, I mean, there's all kinds of ways this plays itself out, and it, like, it, but, but, it, but in, we need to understand at some point that there are consequences for our actions. You know, this is what most of parenting, when children are little, this is what most of parenting is, is trying to help your kids understand consequences for action, for good and bad. And so learning that, like, when you say something's hot, there's at some point that you just have to let your kid touch the tea kettle because they won't believe you and they learn a consequence for their actions. Um, and, and within that, like, there's, there is a reality, too, that every one of us lives naturally in a posture of rebellion against God. Every one of us has made choices out of our own personal sin that have had negative consequences for us. Back to children, I think the only people that don't believe in or the only people I've ever heard, heard argue that original sin isn't a thing, that we aren't born into that, are people who haven't had babies and toddlers in their life because we've had babies and they have a level of selfishness and belligerence that we do not have to teach them like it doesn't take long like as kids are learning to eat i can remember our kids like going at cheerios with intensity and concentration on their high chair and then when they would finally get one instead of sticking it in their mouth they would look right at you as their parent and set their little jaws and go mm. Like we are born with this posture of rebellion and at some point God does allow us to experience the consequences for our actions and sometimes the suffering that we face is just that. It's a consequence for our own sin. Obviously though, that isn't the full picture of things. Sometimes it's a consequence of the wickedness of humanity. And sometimes it's not about your mistakes, but people sin against each other. This is one of the largest categories we see. This is in our own lives. This is in the world around us. This is when we see news events that are, we see violence carried out as people kill and destroy and hurt other people. The the violence that we see is the wickedness of humanity against humanity. And we see this played out over and over and over again in our world and in our lives. And, and some of you, as you've come in here tonight, and I would say most of you, but to varying degrees, some of you are, most of you are carrying a level of brokenness and pain and shame because of things that have been done to you, not because of things you've done. And yet, you've owned responsibility for those things that have been done against you, and it still weighs on your soul, and, and just it, it can be destructive to you. And so, that when you've been treated as less than human, it's hard to break free from that. When, when you've suffered severely at other people's hands or been abused by other people, I mean, this is the essence of injustice. You know, the first category, when it's our own personal sin, when it's our own actions, we, at some point we need to own that some of our suffering is our fault. But, but this, this is different because this isn't on you. This isn't because of things you've done. You don't deserve this kind of suffering. For some of you, this is the biggest barrier you have to Christian faith. It's because of things that have been done against you, because of sin that's been committed against you, and it's been done in the church. And so coming to a point of healing and forgiveness and health it takes a miraculous spiritual formation. So sometimes it's personal sin, sometimes it's sin done against us, but that still doesn't get to our text today. You see, there's something unique about, about the, the man we're introduced to here. Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So this man was crippled from birth. He was never able to stand and walk in his life. It wasn't something he did, and it wasn't something done to him. Now, people in that time, and we still do this to a point, but people at that time may, might have looked for reasons. Like, remember, in the Gospels, there was, Jesus was encountering a blind man, and the disciples asked, like, well, whose fault is this? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus was like, dummies. Neither one. This isn't about one of their sin." There's something else happening here. And, and, and you know, we've got, this, is, this may be the most difficult category for us to deal with because this, it, it, when it's our own personal sin, we can come to at least some understanding of like, well, I shouldn't have done that. And here I've landed myself in this situation. When it's sin done against us, we can see at least the actor who is the one that's responsible that has sinned against us. But, but this, when realizing that some people are just born with a greater level of pain, a greater level of suffering, a greater uphill climb, a, a, a lack of privilege and opportunity. This man never would have had a future, particularly in the time and the era that he was born in. His only hope was that he would have good enough friends that they would be willing to carry him every day to lay him at the gate to collect money. And this reflects a third category, the, the brokenness of all of creation, that we live in a broken world. It's broken through and through. That, that this, there is a theological understanding of this. That this is the result of Adam's sin. All the way back in Genesis 3. That, that God said to the man, he said, he said, because you've eaten of the tree I commanded you not to. Because they rebelled, he rebelled against God, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In Romans 8, it expands this even further. It says to us that, that creation itself has been, will be set free from its bondage to corruption. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. You hear that? that, that, the biblical understanding of suffering is that the brokenness of this world itself goes back to a moment of human rebellion against God. And that now because of our sin and our rebellion and our stand against him and his design for us, that all of this world, everything in the created order has been brought into this place of groaning and longing for its redemption. And so, yes, we live in a broken place, and sometimes the suffering that we see and the pain and the anguish that we see, we won't be able to point to a definable reason that is satisfactory to us because we say, like, this guy was born into this. It isn't fair. He didn't have a level playing field. So This is hard because those same friends and neighbors that I talk to, say, like, well, how can you believe in a God like this? that would allow this kind of suffering? Well, church, for me, it kind of flips the other way. Because I see this kind of suffering in our world. I see all three of these. Yeah, I see personal sin and the consequences that come from it. I see people make bad choices all the time. You know, the, the number of times that I meet with, with people, part of our church that are, as a pastor, and like, you sit across from me and, and are hurt and suffering because of things that you've done and wondering, what should I do? How do I dig myself out of this? And I give you advice and you go, bah, that would have been nice. And you come back three months later and haven't followed any of it. Like we, I see this in your lives and it's heartbreaking, but that it's explainable. I see wickedness of humanity. We see this all the time. We see, and I see the brokenness of creation, just that this world aches. And I don't know how you can look around at the suffering we see in this world and not have a belief that there's any hope for redemption and not have an understanding that it has come from somewhere and that we have some responsibility in it. See, I don't know how outside of a biblical theological grid of understanding that suffering exists, I see the suffering around me. And without the hope of Christ... That's where I think, I, I, without any meaning for it, if, we don't, if you don't believe what, what God has said about it, that there's any reason that it exists and any hope beyond it, that the redemption has come through Christ and, and that we look ahead to the end of all suffering, if you don't have that grid to think about things, then I don't know how you go on in this place. That, to me, of, you know, how do you cope with suffering if there isn't a God how do you cope with suffering if God isn't sovereign and isn't good, and if there isn't hope that he's going to bring an end to it at some point? What, this, that passage in Romans 8 that we just read says, you know, creation itself is groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly, but it's not a groaning that is left without hope. It's as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, as we await the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. And so this world is broken. And there is hope for us. Understanding that helps us to understand then what miraculous healing is all about. In the New Testament, one commentator said that mir- miracles are a direct act of God in the external world in which He works outside but not against the common course of events to reveal Himself, to authenticate His servants, to manifest His nature and redemptive purposes. Um, C.S. Lewis said it's an interference with nature by supernatural power. Now, in the New Testament, we see a pattern. Or we we learn about. There's a theology of the miraculous that we learn about. And we're just going to put them up on the screen. So go ahead. because there's six. Zoe was looking over my sermon notes last night, my 12-year-old daughter. If you don't know Zoe, she is too smart for her own good. And so she was doing things as a 12-year-old, like looking through my sermon notes for me. She was looking through them and she was like, Dad, you have 18 points tomorrow. I was like, I know, it'll be okay. (laughs) We'll get through this together. So we're just going to put them up there so you don't feel like you have to scramble to keep up. There they are. There's a biblical theology in the New Testament that develops of what the miraculous is, what miraculous healing is. And I want us to be able to have this foundation as we walk through this together tonight. So what do we learn? Well, first, healing is a restoration of God's design. This is essential. We were not created with a capacity for suffering and death. God, remember, the tree in the garden was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God knew that we can't handle understanding the depths of evil, the depths of suffering, the depths of depravity, that it would make us unable to cope with our lives. And so he protected us from that and still humanity sinned against him. Now, Jesus came to restore God's creation, to make all things new. That's what he says in Revelation is that, that when he comes again, it will be to restore all things that there, and to make all things new, to breathe new life and to, and to bring a restoration of what this place was designed to be. And so to understand what miraculous healings are, we have to understand that it's not so much a violation of natural law as it is a restoration of the true laws and designs of a good God that Jesus was was breathing a restoration of God's design into the people that he interacted with. And in that, the second point that healing shows us God's character and compassion. And God says of himself that he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We don't deserve anything good. We all live in a posture of rebellion against him, and still he intervenes at times to to bring healing and to bring the future into the present now out of compassion and love for us. In the New Testament, we also see that healing affirms God's word and his workers. In Acts 3, this is the case. It's the beginnings of the church. And Peter and John were, were proclaiming good news of who Christ is, pro- speaking the gospel. and And so in that moment, God was affirming their leadership as apostles by working by his spirit through them. It showed that and this is that they were legitimately preaching the right things, that they were working in the power of Christ, that people in this area had seen Jesus heal crippled beggars. And so now that same power is at work through his servants, confirming their position and uh, confirming God's word through them. And fourth is that, it, that healing, miraculous healing, gives us a foretaste of, of eternity. In Revelation chapter 21, we get a portrait of the new heavens and the new earth. Eternity, biblically, is not pictured as some ethereal, celestial setting. We're not fat cherubs floating around on clouds playing harps. There's something more real and earthy to the biblical description for us. And so what we read there is that the city of God is is with man. The dwelling place of God is with human beings, that God is with us. And the portrait is that that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, that death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the hope that we look ahead to, church. This is what makes it possible to cope with suffering now. God is not distant from us as if he doesn't see our pain and sorrow, but Jesus has given us the promise that the time will come when injustice will be erased, when he will be tenderly there to comfort us and wipe the tears away from our eyes. When death will be gone, when sorrow and pain and mourning are no more, the former things have passed away because he's making all things new. And when we see healings in the New Testament, and when we hear about legitimate healings through God's people now, what we are seeing and experiencing and reading about and encountering is the future eternal presence of God that is coming to bear in space and time before our eyes. And so when Peter and John walk into the temple courts and reach down and pick up that crippled beggar and say, stand and walk in the, by the name of Jesus Christ, what they are doing is they are giving through that man a glimpse into God's eternal presence. That leads to the fifth point, that God continues to heal today. Now, it's not normative. It doesn't happen. The, the gift of healing that we'll get to in a second isn't that, anybody, that any single person can heal everybody they touch. It's, it's, but it's also not impossible. What we do see throughout the New Testament is that healing is de- entirely dependent on God. And Jesus' kingdom has begun, and we see in his ministry a restoration of all things and a glimpse of eternity, and and that extended through the apostles and through the early church, and we read about it through the book of Acts, and that extends to us today. And so, church, we have an expectation that God continues to move by his spirit and power. And that gets to the sixth and final, uh, an understanding, the New Testament understanding of healing, is that the spirit gives gifts of healing, I want you to notice that's pluralized. And the reason it's plural, gifts of healing, is because in First in Corinthians 12, it's plural. And that's important for us. It doesn't, it, it, because what this means is that there is more to healing than just physicality. I think when we think about miraculous healing, that's typically what we think of, is we want to say, well, I want to see a crippled beggar healed, like in Acts 3. That's, it's incredible. We, we see that his legs strengthened and his, and his feet strengthened, and he's, he's able to jump up. I want to see that kind of healing, and that's a good thing to long for, but there's healing that God does and healing work that God does that, that goes beyond simply physical. Um, what this means for us is now. Let's. I mean, let's just acknowledge this. Redemption Hill. We have a wide diversity of church background in our church, and so for some of you right now, you're like, "Yes, I've been waiting for the sermon. Like, get out the oil. Let's go." And for some of you right now, like you're the ones who didn't just laugh, and you're like, "I don't know where this is going," <laughs> and if he pulls out oil, I don't know what I'm gonna do. <laughs> So listen, if you're more on the frozen chosen side of the spectrum, it's <laughs> okay. We're going to bring you along gently. And you need to know that we're not going to go like Benny Hinn style in here and start slapping people with towels. Have you seen the YouTube video where they turned it into a lightsaber? It's incredible. <laughs> now, but we do believe that the spirit continues to gift people to, he- to heal. And being gifted toward healing simply means that as we pray for each other, that some people's prayers are going to be answered with greater frequency and clarity. And so if that happens, when that happens, as a church, we want to recognize that and open the way for that ministry to flourish. But that pluralization gives us evidence that there's more than just physical healing here. Now, we've seen physical healing even in our church. And we had, um, maybe one of the more dramatic examples, we had a, a man who was in our church and has since moved away, and, um, but he had been in Afghanistan in the army, and he would stepped on an IED. And so he got blown up. He, his legs were kind of mangled, and he was in re- rehab for that. But one of the things that happened in the explosion was that, as you might imagine, both eardrums were blown out. And so he, he had, they couldn't repair them both at the same time. They repaired his one eardrum, and then a, a month later, they were going to go in and repair the other side. And the night before he went in for his surgery, his community group just prayed for him. Simple prayers. God, would you heal Dana's ear? They went in the next day at Walter Reed Medical Center, and they said to him, like, we, we don't know why you're here because your eardrum is totally intact. He said, well, that can't be. He had papers diagnosing that his eardrum was blown. And so he ended up going to Johns Hopkins to get a second opinion. And they said the same thing. Like, we don't don't know why you're here. You're totally healthy. And they sent him home. There's no explanation medically for what happened to the man. Yet God intervened. We do believe that God can continue to heal us now. That he can reach out and give us those glimpses of eternity. But it's not always physical. Sometimes it's emotional healing. Emotional wounds can run deeper than physical wounds. And there's times when, when that may be, where, where there may be physicality that we get hung up on, but the emotional reality is much, much deeper. This is why, like, when you're a kid on the playground, you're like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's like, there has never been a bigger lie. Like, as a boy especially, the amount of tussles I got into on playgrounds and fights I got into and throwing stuff at each other and hurting each other, I don't remember any of that stuff, but I still have things that were said to me in my childhood that come back like a tape replay because those emotional wounds go so deep and can be so deadly and so hard to heal. And so it may be that, someone, that you need to be with a gifted counselor, a therapist that has a gift in being able to help you come closer to Christ and experience healing at an emotional level. And sometimes it might not be physicality, it might be more of like a social level of healing as if you've been shamed and dehumanized in your life that you need to be embedded in a community of love and trust where you can actually heal. There was one time that I was in Southeast Asia in a, in a small village and was asked, a so family found out that I was a pastor. And so they, they, they weren't Christians, but they thought, well, let's try this. And they said, well, you can pray for our son. Their son was around 15 years old, but he hadn't been out of the house in over a decade. He was physically deformed. He couldn't walk. Um, he had to crawl awkwardly. And so they asked, will you come and pray for our son to be healed? And so I went in and, and in, you know, belief, I believe God can do this and prayed and in anguish over their son and their situation. And, and he, it wasn't an Acts 3 moment. I wasn't able to just grab Johari, was this boy's name, by the hand, and lift him up and say, walk. And, and, but we did pray and there was a group of us laying hands on and praying over this boy. And it, after, after some time in prayer with his family and praying for his parents, um, there was gonna be a celebration that evening in this village. And so we just asked, can we bring Johari? We didn't know any of the background. We just asked, can we bring him? And they said, sure, and I'm I'm a fairly decent sized guy. And so I was able to pick up Johari and carry him, you know, half mile to the celebration. We got there and sat him in a chair and watched him enjoying the whole thing and brought him back that night. Then that night we learned that he hadn't been out of the house in over a decade. That in that community, his parents had been ostracized and shamed because they were blamed. Their sin was blamed for the condition of their son. And in that moment, they were embraced by the village in unexpected ways. They were brought in. People were excited to see them and grateful to see them. And what they experienced was a level of healing that we were looking for physical signs. But they were re-embraced by the people who had turned them away. So it may be that physical healing isn't the deepest issue for us. We believe that the Spirit of God is powerful to heal. So within that, understanding that suffering exists, understanding that, there are, that what miraculous healing is, then there's a New Testament pattern that we see for healing, of, of the regular pattern of how this looked in the New Testament. And so this informs us as we pursue these things and as we pray for God to heal today, the first thing that we see in the New Testament in regular pattern is that they lay hands on people. This was Jesus' pattern. In Luke chapter 4, it says that he'd been ministering and preaching all day and casting out demons. and now when the sun was setting, all those who had, who, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and Jesus laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. So there's something about physical touch that was important in Jesus' ministry, and that even happened in the next chapter. Jesus healed a leper. Now, leprous people, it was a contagious disease, and they were ostracized from community. And in Luke 5, we read about this account where Jesus healed a leper, but it's significant that before healing the man, that The man cried out to him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And the leprosy left him. So there we see Jesus reaching out and touching a man even before he's cleansed to lay his hands on him in order for him to be healed. Peter, in Acts chapter 3, the text we read tonight, reached out his hand and touched the man, grabbed him by his right hand and lifted him up. So laying on of hands is a regular pattern that we see for healing. In the New Testament, there's an intimacy and a physicality to touch that comes with healing. The second thing we see is people being anointed with oil. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent out his disciples and said that they should lay hands on people and anoint them with oil and pray that they would be healed. In James chapter 5, we see this extended as a command to us in the church. It says in James 5, is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the, on the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so there's, a, there's this call in the early church, to us as the church, to, that if you're sick or weak, call on the elders of the church. Have them lay hands on you and anoint you with oil and pray for you. Oil was medicinal in the ancient Near East. And so it was used as a salve, but it was also to indicate the presence of the Holy Spirit. And in James 5, we also see this call for a prayer of faith. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. I think we often take that as our own personal faith, that we have, need to have enough faith. And there are Christian traditions and streams and, uh, that teach that, that we need to have enough faith. And so and it, there are times when it is the faith of the one healed, where Jesus would say to people, your faith has healed you, and come and be healed and be cleansed. But the idea that it has to be enough faith it gets silly. Like Jesus said, if we have faith like a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Have you ever spent time, I mean, I've done this, where have you ever spent time going, gosh, what, is, what will it take me to get up to the level of mustard seed? Mustard seed was the smallest seed. It was the smallest thing Jesus could come up with to talk about. What he's saying there is not that you need to get up to a certain level of faith. It's not, there's nowhere that you can make the defense, biblically, that not having enough faith is the reason you're sick or the reason that God won't heal you. It's the presence of faith. It's not the strength of our faith. It's the strength of the one we have faith in that can actually bring healing. And it's not always the faith of the person healed. Sometimes it's the faith of the ones around them. And so there was one time that Jesus was teaching in a house filled with religious leaders. And and some friends brought their paralyzed friend, much like the people who would carry this man to the beautiful gate. They brought their friend and tore a hole through the roof to lower their friend down in front of Jesus. And Jesus said to that man, well, the faith of your friends just healed you. Get up and walk. That wasn't the faith of the paralyzed man, it was the faith of his friends. There's a Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 that, that, it, that came and it was her faith that brought the healing of her daughter, a centurion whose faith brought the healing of his servant. And here in James where it said the prayer of faith is the faith of the elders of the church praying over the people entrusted to their care, that that is the means of grace that God can extend to us. A theologian named Wayne Grudem said this. He said, when we pray, it seems right that our first assumption, our first assumption, unless we have specific reason to think otherwise, should be that God would be pleased to heal the person we are praying for. As far as we can tell from scripture, that is God's revealed will so a prayer of faith doesn't mean we're free from doubts. It means that we are willing to call on God for action and even willing to say, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And so come with your doubts. Confess any sin that you have and your inability to find healing on your own and then pray that God would bring healing in your life. And ask for others to pray for you. And fourth, pursue means of common grace as well. Let's be clear here. The Bible does not stand against medicine. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, was a doctor, a physician. So can we just be clear that Luke wasn't anti-doctor? He wasn't anti-medicine? That we have clear evidence of people pursuing medicine and, and good common grace throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament? I mean, Luke details that there was a bleeding woman who pursued doctors and medical care for 12 years before she she encountered Jesus and was healed. Even Paul said to Timothy at one point, he said, Timothy, stop drinking only water and and mix in a little wine for the sake of your stomach. You do something to help yourself out and get healthy here. So do pursue means of common grace. But here's what we often see as a church, because we are very willing to follow simple biblical instruction. If you feel weak or sick, if you feel like you need healing, whether that's physical or emotional or spiritual or, or shame that you've experienced, if you come to us, we will spend time praying for you. As elders of this church, we will anoint you with oil and plead with God on your behalf. And, and, and we're willing to do that at whatever stage you are at in the journey. But so often, the way that this story goes for us is that we have people that'll say, like, I've pursued everything I can and I've got no hope left. And so this is my last like my last hope, my last reaching out that maybe God can do something. Church, can I encourage you to flip that order a little bit? If something comes up and you're pursuing medical care, come to us first and ask God that God might heal you and then keep pursuing it. But turn to the church so we can lay hands and anoint you with oil and pray in faith that God would bring healing. And who knows what God will do? so we've got just a few minutes left we're going to look at what if god doesn't heal and then what if he does if god doesn't heal if we pray and plead with him what do we do how do you respond to that when you have like the expectation and the hope and the faith that he can well first i want to encourage you to trust that he is good In that chapter, back in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he said, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of, of his sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so it's in this context when he's saying, he knows the future glory that's coming. He knows the freedom from suffering that's coming. He knows what he's looking ahead to. And even still, we are groaning, waiting for that day of redemption. Then Paul is still able to say, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So trust that God is good, that he can use even suffering and sorrow, and that in the end, that he is still the one that will wipe every tear from your eye and make all things new. In that, seek Christ in the depth of the valley that Paul who wrote Romans in that section of Romans, he lived this on his own. It wasn't like he was exempt from suffering. And he talks about his suffering, that he was beaten with rocks. He was whipped. He was shipwrecked. He experienced all kinds of suffering in his life. And, and then in 2 Corinthians 12, we read about this thorn in the flesh that he had. And we have no idea what it was. There's all kinds of speculation about what it was that was so tormenting to the Apostle Paul. We just don't know. And I think it's the grace of God that we don't know. Because if we knew what Paul dealt with, it was like, well, he dealt with depression. You can go, well, this is physical. It's not depression and write it off. Or if it was physical, you could write it off and say, mine's not that, it's internal. And whatever it is, but instead it's left ambiguous for us. And all we know is that he wrestled hard with something that caused him intense suffering and sorrow. He pleaded with God three times that it would be removed from him. And then in the midst of the worst of it, in the, in the darkest shadows of the valley, he was finally actually able to find the voice and the presence of Christ. And as Christ said to him, my grace is sufficient to you you, for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. If you've walked through suffering in your life, then you may be able to attest to this reality, that as you've walked through things, you might look back at your life, and I can look back at points in my life and say, my God, Lord, please don't ever put me through that again, but I would never let go of how sweet my reliance on him was in the midst of it. Because sometimes it's only when Christ is all we have that we realize that he's all we need. And third, if God doesn't heal, find joy in thanksgiving, even in the sorrow and pain. At the beginning of James's letter, he says, Count it joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that, that through that you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. See, God can use our suffering in our lives. I don't think it's right for us to presume why God allows us to suffer. Like when you go into somebody else's life and play the role of Job's friends, and you say like, well, God's making you, you know, what lesson is God trying to teach you? Maybe nothing. But I do believe that God can use the suffering in our lives, whether, whatever those categories it was, whether it's your own personal sin that's caused it, or sin against you, or just the brokenness generally of this world. God can use those things for our sanctification. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to a deaf world. So if God doesn't heal, trust in his goodness. Find Christ in the depth of the valley and then find joy and thanksgiving, even in the sorrow and pain. Fourth, I'm going to add a point to this. Um, In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks to the Corinthian church and encourages them that God brings us through trials and sorrows sometimes so that we can comfort those who walk through similar things with the comfort that he's given us. And so don't, don't, Short circuit that process. Like, don't become the expert on suffering when you're in the middle of it. But when you've walked through the valley and and the Spirit of God has brought healing into your life, you will find yourself in situations where you are you walk into somebody's life unexpectedly, and all of a sudden you find yourself able to bring the Spirit of God and be an instrument of healing into their lives in ways you never could have predicted. And so look ahead for that. Ask God for those moments. If He does heal, well, this gets easier. Look at what the guy did in Acts three. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And what he, he didn't go home. You notice this? He leapt up and entered the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You know, this, is, this is a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 35 where it says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Some of you that have an anxious heart tonight, this is God's word to you in this moment. Be strong, don't be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God, and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. If God chooses to heal you, leap up. Praise Him. Go to where people are and tell the story so that people will join you in praising God as well. Celebrate these things. And I don't, however the healing comes, whether the healing is miraculous, like like Dana's eardrum, or whether it's something through modern medicine that God is able to direct the hands of doctors to bring healing to you, take nothing for granted. When you experience healing in your life, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, whatever it is, celebrate and enjoy it. Tell the story and be sure that the credit doesn't go to, the, to you as the one healed or to the people that were involved with you, but, but make sure that all of the credit and glory goes to God alone. And whenever our suffering is relieved and our bodies heal and our, or our souls are mended, that healing is miraculous. And tell the story so that others join you in praise. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. They knew this guy. He didn't just like say like, you know, he, he wasn't belligerent toward them or angry toward them saying like, I sat at this gate for how many years and now I'm out of here. He went into that place where people knew him so that he could talk about what God had done in him. And now he, he was celebrating those things and people were praising God because of it. Some of you have stories to tell. So what's holding you back from celebrating God's kindness to you? Any one of us who's found hope in Jesus has a story to tell. We need to tell those stories. And listen, some of you are in need of healing tonight. It could be because of something you've done. It could be because of something done to you, evil that you've experienced. It could be suffering simply due to the brokenness of the world that we live in. You don't have to continue to suffer alone. Turn to Jesus for help, plead with him, and let the church come alongside you, the people that God has put around you to, to enter into the suffering with you. Turn to Jesus for help with prayer, and, and, and you, know, you know that every week we have people that we, I say this every time I introduce communion, we'll have people available down in this front corner by the piano. If any of you need someone to pray with or to talk to, they're available for you tonight. Take some time to go and have people pray over you. Take the time tonight. I'll be down there tonight too. I would love to pray for you. You want to set up a time with our elders so that we can lay hands on you and anoint you with oil and pray over you because you feel sick or weak? Come and talk to us. We'll set up the time. We believe that God can heal you. We really believe that Jesus is making all things new and that the same spirit that was at work through the Apostle Peter to lift that crippled beggar laying at the beautiful gate is still moving in Jesus' church now. And if God does choose to heal, then we're going to celebrate together. We'll tell that story so that he gets the glory for his work in our midst. And even if he doesn't, then we lean in together, and others can enter into your suffering with you and remind you that God is good to seek Christ in the valley, to find joy and thanksgiving, and you can find healing for your soul, even if it's not the healing you were looking for. And then eventually, God can open the door for you to comfort others, even as you've been comforted. But you don't need to walk alone, God is good. He's God of life. Jesus came to heal and to restore. Let's turn to him together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask now that you would move by your spirit to bring healing in this room whatever people are facing, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual, whether it's deep shame, that you would, that the wounds would become exposed so that your spirit could heal, even though it'll hurt in the moment that you, the healing balm of your goodness and grace would come down on this place. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would move through us as individuals and as a church to be instruments of your healing in this city. That we wouldn't get too caught up in ourselves, but would be willing to reach out and reach out our hands and touch and lift people around us. And we pray that you would move for the sake of your glory and your name and your fame. And pray these things because we love you and because we believe. So Lord Jesus, help our unbelief, amen.